This is Sit Rep on BFBS. Obama and Cameron shoulder to shoulder on Afghanistan. For decades, uh, our troops have stood together on the battlefield. And a former ISAF commander says the special relationship is all for real. We are very closely integrated. We've been doing a lot of hard things together for the last few years. And we are one of those partners uh, who the Americans know will do the hard things. Hello, I'm Glenn Mansell. Now, Barack Obama and David Cameron have both insisted the international mission in Afghanistan is making real progress. The US President and British Prime Minister have been meeting in the United States for the last three days. During a news conference following two hours of talks at the White House, they said full responsibility for security would be transferred to Afghan forces in two years' time. Mr Cameron confirmed that coalition forces would be shifting to a support role next year. We are now in the final phases of our military mission. That means completing the training of the Afghan forces so that they can take over the tasks of maintaining security themselves. That transition to Afghan control, as agreed at Lisbon, is now well underway. Mr Obama said he knew that coalition forces had made a lot of sacrifices in Afghanistan. What's undeniable, though, and what we can never forget, is that our forces are making very real progress. Dismantling al-Qaeda, breaking the Taliban's momentum, and training Afghan forces uh, so that they can take the lead and our troops can come home. That transition is already underway, and about half of all Afghans currently live in areas where Afghan security forces are taking responsibility. He said neither Britain nor the United States would abandon their mission in Afghanistan. We're going to complete this mission, and we're going to do it responsibly. And NATO will maintain an enduring commitment so that Afghanistan never again becomes a haven for al-Qaeda to attack our countries. And he announced steps to bring the militaries of both countries closer together. I can announce that next month we intend to start implementing our long-awaited defense trade treaty with the UK. This will put advanced technologies in the hands of our troops and it will mean more jobs for workers in both our countries. And we're moving ahead with our joint initiative to care for our men and women in uniform. You know, for decades uh, our troops have stood together uh, on the battlefield. Now we're working together for them when they come home with new partnerships to help our wounded warriors recover, assist our veterans transition back to civilian life, and to support our remarkable military families. BFPS defense analyst Christopher Lee is here with me now. It all sounds very friendly and chummy and joined up. Is this reality on the ground, though? Um, it always does. Um, it's very rare that you're going to have a, an occasion like this, and the most astonishing occasion to sort of emphasize this special relationship, the red carpet, the state banquet. Air Force it, One. Air, Air Force One. Isn't that tacky? I know. Yeah, I've got a big aeroplane. <laughs> you know, let's go and see a baseball game or a basketball game or whatever it was. That is not the sort of thing you expect the president and, and, and the prime minister um, to do. Anyway, go back to this. I mean, it was, I was interested in... Some of the things that he had to say, for example, we, the, we're nearly uh, completing our mission and we've got to make sure that, it, uh, that Afghanistan doesn't become a safe haven for terrorism. If you pull out troops, how do you stop it becoming a safe haven for terrorism? Now, they were arguing, and the guy I was talking to in Washington said, well, he said the storybook version of this 
is that you, you, you wind up the Afghan forces and the police into a strong enough unit that it's they who stop them from uh, the terrorists getting back into safe haven. That is la-la land, and every tactician in Washington will actually say that. Of course, one of the things they haven't spoken publicly about is whether Britain and America should have gone there in the first place. This is the, this is the most difficult thing because it's, it's old now. You know, we're there, we've got to hack it because we are there. Uh, there's what is most definitely there in that meeting, the sense in the meeting, was not so much as should we have gone there in the first place, but in future it is the coalition of the willing and you've got to have a much better understanding of what not so much you might do, but what you do when you get there and how long it is. Because the biggest problem, and it wasn't necessarily addressed, it will be by May at the Chicago-NATO summit, the, most, the biggest problem is where is the strategy for what you do when you start the drawdown? Now, next week, for example, there's a bunch of NATO guys are getting together. And what their, uh, their great concern is, supposing, as they in, in, insinuated in this meeting, supposing we start to make the drawdown a bit early, there are 40 other countries that will make a mud, mad rush for the door. And how do you stop that happening? And that's the problem. Well, one person who knows exactly what it's like to work with the U.S. military at a high level is former deputy commander of ISAF, Lieutenant General Jonathan Riley. He told BFBS reporter Jeff Meade that the closeness of the two leaders wasn't simply PR and window dressing, but demonstrated the close links between the two nations' militaries. I think on a personal level, uh, it does look like very genuine mutual affection and mutual respect. And... Although we are a junior partner in the coalition and the US is overwhelmingly the strongest partner, we are very closely integrated. We've been doing a lot of hard things together for the last few years. And we are one of those partners uh, who the Americans know will do the hard things. Now that brings us uh, a, price, a price tag, uh, but it brings us uh, a, a lot of access and a lot of trust. The other issue of course is behind the scenes that you know they will have talked in great detail about what's happening in Afghanistan um, there is a how can I put it a concern uh, that if you look at the, uh, the the rate of drawdown the Americans have a much greater number of troops but proportionately they're also drawing down at twice the, the rate of the British how does that disparity uh, how might it affect conditions on the ground and how do the two militaries work together to achieve more coordination? Well, well, let me take you back to my previous answer, which is that the Americans are overwhelmingly the strongest partner, not only in terms of numbers, but in terms of development aid and indeed of capabilities. Most of the air support is theirs, a lot of the intelligence gathering uh, framework is theirs, uh, and so on. So it's not really a tenable proposition for any junior partner to operate successfully uh, in a hot war without the American framework. So from, because of that, the, uh, the staffs will be close alongside each other. And the staffs are very well integrated at ISAF and at core level and, uh, and below. So the Americans will take the British along in terms of their planning, in terms of transitioning to the Afghans in places like Sangin. They're not going to say, sorry, chum, we're out of here. It's up to you now. No, this is, uh, this is an ISAF level uh, command decision. Uh, which will be cleared first of all uh, with the higher NATO headquarters. No, no partner, even the strongest one, can make a decision like that unilaterally. 
How vulnerable a time is this next year, 18 months, going to be? Because, you know, the enemy is as aware as everybody else of what's going on. You think they'll seek to exploit this transition? Uh, it's an, uh, Crystal ball gazing is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Uh, it's entirely possible. On the other hand, uh, they may take the view that, well, they're leaving. All we have to do is wait them out. And it'll be easier for us to take on the new Afghan army than it is to take on this lot. Is that a worry? The new Afghan army? Um, it's made huge strides. You know, we've asked that army to more than double in size uh, to adopt new doctrines, new structures, new equipments, to change its whole way of doing business in a very short space of time. I doubt the British Army could do as much as we have asked that army to do. In terms of the drawdown, uh, the support role that we'll, we're told we, we will assume next year, what are the practicalities of that? What are the nuts and bolts? What planning, uh, what preparation, what will be happening on the ground now? Well, the, the bones of that role are already there uh, with the embedded training and mentoring teams. And they will continue to operate. The, the teams that have trained Afghan forces for combat uh, will go with them on combat missions. That's necessary to ensure mutual trust uh, and to make sure that the training is translated into effective operations. So all the time that those people remain, the essential combat and combat service support functions that they need uh, to back them up, to keep them out of trouble, to, to bring in assistance when it's needed, that's got to stay. Uh, the question mark then is what's left? And the staffs will be having a long hard look at things like logistic stocks, uh, reducing what's necessary either through destruction, handing over to the Afghans, backloading or use, looking at vehicles, looking at what functions might be uh, taken out of the theatre without taking risk in the areas where we can't take risk, things like dealing with casualties, making sure we've got enough ammunition and so on. Then they'll be looking at things like contracts. A huge amount of our uh, combat service support is delivered by contract. Those contractors need to be told uh, what they're doing and when they're doing it. Then there's looking at the lines of communication. Uh, how are we going to achieve this drawdown? Are we doing it using the rail network through, uh, through Europe? and into the former Soviet Central Asian Republics? Uh, are we going to rely on the land route through Pakistan with all its vulnerabilities? How much air capacity have we got? Uh, now there's a lot of sums in that, uh, a lot of math that has to be fitted into a, uh, a designated time envelope. Lieutenant General Jonathan Riley speaking to our reporter Jeff Mead. Christopher Lee, what do you think? How is this exit going to play out? It is so complicated, isn't it? It is not just a question of saying we're going. Now, for example, there are 358 districts. They sort of, if you think in UK terms, they're sort of like big counties in uh, Afghanistan. Three of them are organised by the British. What the British are doing in Helmand and what they will be doing in Helmand will become the model for the other 355. Now, that's got to be implemented. So when you've got uh, uh, Jonathan Riley there talking about the Afghan army has got to take a big role in this in security. You have to remember two things. One, it's a third team. We're not looking to produce a first team. He said, I'm sure the British Army couldn't get this together. Well, we're not trying to produce a first team. We're trying to produce what I would call a militia, really, that can control 
in that environment. The second part is that when you do that, you have to look at what you're leaving behind. We come back to what uh, President Obama was saying, you know, mustn't make it a safe haven for terrorists. Well, how do you do that? You rely on the Afghan army. Okay, the Afghan army is going to be there as a third-team militia. Where are its helicopters? Where's its intelligence? Where's its armor? Where is its medical support? They haven't got any. You can't train them to do it. Now, what you do then, you get into the middle management process, which is what the British are going to be doing, and that's why the British part of this is so important. They're going to set up a Sandhurst, a model of Sandhurst in the middle of Kabul. Uh, apart from the close protection, I mean, that's going to be a bit of a problem. 350 guys, they're going to teach people up to sort of company commander level very, very, very quickly. That is, I mean, that's just skimmed a couple of points of, uh, of the practical side of what the British are doing, but what the British are doing has, it expands, has got, to be, it has got to be sort of measured right through the three, those 350 districts I was talking about. I mean, we talked about designated time envelopes just at the end of that piece there. I mean, President Karzai has told the American Defense Secretary, Leon Panetta, that the Afghan government wanted to take control of the country's security next year. That's a year earlier than the 2014 date planned by international forces. Well, he may tell him that, but then he has to turn around and, says, and say to his army generals, can you do it? And that is the problem. And so the Americans, for example, might say, yeah, we'd love to go earlier. But the problem is you're not going to actually shift out of the country. Because if the army cannot do that, then you come back to what President Obama was saying, we mustn't leave it for a safe haven. You only leave it for, as a safe haven if you haven't produced the security uh, matrix to go in there, and that's not what's there at the moment. And finally on this, will Britain go to war alongside America again? Yeah. It can't go to war, really, alongside anybody else, can it? Um, I mean, the whole asymmetrical warfare that people now talk about... But it's nothing to do with that special relationship that everybody was going on about. The special relationship is politics. And if the politics are right, then Britain might do it. But you tell me where they might have to. Syria, Iran, we hope not. Sit right. Still to come, why the government needs to decide which fighter jet it wants to buy. We'll explain the options. BFBS SIPREP. The massacre of 16 Afghan civilians by an American soldier has prompted much speculation and debate about how and why it was able to happen. Hillary Clinton described it as the inexplicable act of one soldier, while one commentator wrote that massacres are the inevitable result of foreign occupation. Yesterday's Guardian ran an article by Giles Fraser called Soldiers Without a Safety Catch. In it, the author points the finger at the psychological conditioning of American soldiers, which he claims allows them to kill more easily. He says the soldier who killed civilians did so because his inbuilt human safety catch has been removed. Surgeon Captain Morgan O'Connell is the, a military psychiatrist and a consultant to combat stress. Welcome to SITREP. Thank you. Are soldiers trained to be killing machines? In, in this case, did the safety catch come off? Was it removed? Well, certainly uh, the, our prime purpose is to convince the enemy that if they go to war with us, they are going to suffer more than we are. And one could argue that we've actually failed once we have to go to war. But once we are engaged with the enemy, our intention is to kill as many of them as quickly as possible to bring the conflict to a, a conclusion sooner rather than later. So do we, do we have to train soldiers to treat enemy as subhuman? No, you have to respect your enemy. Um, some people will certainly look at the uh, 
opposition as being subhuman, but they're likely then to suffer as a consequence themselves because they'll have underrated their enemy. We don't underrate our enemy. We've learned the hard way not to do so. And what did you make of Giles Fraser's piece yesterday? I thought it was quite interesting. Um, Clearly the Americans uh, train their people in a slightly different way to the way we train our people. But the end result is the same, that you want um, the individual who's, who's in charge of a lethal weapon to behave responsibly and to use it as effectively as possible and not to be a liability. Why do things like this massacre of the 16 Afghan civilians happen? And are they preventable or is it something that's always going to happen? You're going to get one rogue element. Well, I, I don't know why he, he did what he did. We may never know why he did what we did. There's always the possibility that there is somebody who uh, joins with an ulterior motive and uh, eventually uh, unleashes the anger uh, and the aggression and, and the callousness that uh, is in all of us, but most of us contain. Can you speculate? Is it a moment of madness or is it something pre-calculated? No, I, I wouldn't even hesitate. I wouldn't even begin to speculate. Um, I don't know enough about it. Should there be more mental health support for serving soldiers, do you think? Of course there should be. The same way there should be more he- uh, mental health support for society in general. But we've only got a, uh, a limited purse and we've moved on tremendously in the last 30 years in the recognition and management of post-conflict problems amongst our armed forces. And you run a very successful outreach uh, organisation, don't you? Well, it's kind of you to say so. Uh, It it is certainly something that has caught the attention of our colleagues in the NHS who are looking uh, to support us in the work that we do at the Veterans Outreach Support in Portsmouth, based on the Royal Maritime Club. Surgeon Captain Morgan O'Connell, thank you very much indeed. Christopher, what do you think about this safety catch argument? It started in just after the Second World War by an American called Marshall, uh, who, who wrote a very detailed account of how uh, somebody is taken, turned into a soldier, turned to, uh, sh- uh, shown how to kill, and then he's on his own after that. What Giles Fraser, who wrote this piece, fails to sort of get into is that all that martial stuff, which, which continued, was quite valid up until maybe the 60s, 70s, uh, concerned conscripted armies. It's both the Americans and, and the United Kingdom until the end of the 50s had largely conscripted forces. And how you train, and to the level you train, and the motivation that you have in conscript armies is quite different from that into a volunteer army. So you send a professional force will kill uh, in, in a different way to a conscript No, you train them in a different way. And their training is ongoing. Mm. So you get a guy in and he's in for, say, 18 months, two years, then he's gone back being another sort of butcher. And this is this is the difficulty that Fraser didn't get into. The other thing that which is which is quite a, 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 a difficult to get round, and that is the information feed that goes into the modern soldier, uh, and it starts uh, in for two reasons. But it, it starts in television. I'm not looking in television. But it starts in television programs. It starts in games uh, you know, on a, on a DS or, or whatever. It's the build-up that you have in a modern society that when a guy volunteers, and this man was a, was a senior NCO, so he'd been around for a bit, yeah, uh, you have this uh, inbuilt frustration. And that, when Morgan O'Connell was saying you know, everybody ought to be checked out 
mentally every so often. That is the huge danger because uh, at a certain level in your society, in, in, in the forces, for example, senior NCOs, you're on your own. You're a silent person in many ways, and that, that's a difficult area to get into. I can remember within my own service career the changing of targets, the humanization of targets from the, from the roundel that we used to use to, yeah. the, to, the, to the face that you were then shooting at. And I, it did seem then that the training had changed somewhat. Well, it always bothered me that when they changed them to the sort of the soldier coming towards you with a fixed bayonet, etc., he looked like an American soldier. He certainly didn't look uh, like an enemy soldier had told you to expect. But there's one important point there. When you were doing that, we were talking about the Cold War. It was state-to-state warfare. This is much deeper. This is uh, in warfare among people in their country that you don't actually understand. And that's where mistakes happen. This is BFBS. Sit rep. So, which fighter jet should Britain be buying? It looks like the government is having a rethink over which model of the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter it should order. Newspaper reports suggest that the MOD could change its mind again and switch back to the F-35B after ditching the model 18 months ago in favour of the C variant, which was seen as more capable and less expensive. Earlier I spoke to Professor Eric Grove, who is a naval historian from the University of Salford. I asked him to explain the difference between the F-35 variants. Well, the F-35B is a short takeoff vertical landing aircraft. It has a lift engine, which is some price in its overall, overall performance, and it was going to replace the Harrier until we scrapped them. And other countries hope that it will replace their Harrier not least the US Marine Corps. The F-35C, the C doesn't actually stand for carrier, it's the third third variant, but it is actually the carrier variant. It is built for operations with catapults and arrestor gear. And when the SDSR took the decision to go for cats and traps, it also took the decision to to shift models from the F-35B to the F-35C. And the F-35B has been having rather more development problems than the F-35C. So uh, the, the C is known as the cat and trap, uh, as I understand That's right, it. yes, yes, yes. Uh, and is it a better aircraft or not? Well, it's a longer range aircraft, uh, and in performance terms, I think it's something that uh, even when we were committed to the F-35B, a lot of people actually in the, in the carrier air, air community or potential community wanted. Uh, it has had a great problem, and a pretty fundamental one, with its arrestor hook. But my sources tell me, actually, that the hook can be modified. It's in, actually, the wrong place on the aircraft. But if you modify the hook, it can, in fact, be uh, 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 satisfactory in carrier landings. But I think that's been the problem. There, there may be other ones, too. But, but my information was the F-35C had actually the least problems of any of the three types. Because in addition to the B and the C, there's also the A, which is the simple Air Force version for flying from land bases. Going back to the B would be interesting. I know the B has been doing better recently than it has been in the past. It's looking rather more practical. Uh, but the US Marine Corps, until recently, were rather very concerned that it wouldn't, in fact, be procured. So going for the F-35B would be, in the immortal words of Yes Minister, in my opinion, something of a courageous decision. <laughs> uh, it would, I mean, embarrassing hardly describes how it would be if they changed their mind. But, uh, I mean, could they go back now or, or, or not? Well, they could, and it would save a certain amount of money. I mean, one of the first things that happened with the decision to cancel Harrier was that they took the ski jump ramp off the um, off the Queen Elizabeth uh, design, and uh, it's not going to be completed with a ski jump ramp. Uh, now, there were some problems, perhaps, in uh, in getting the F-35B operating from a ski jump, but the plan always was that it would, because ski jumps, generally speaking, with short takeoff and vertical landing aircraft, improve uh, improve performance. Co- 
considerably. It means they can take off with a heavier load of fuel and weapons. Um, so they'd have to go back to the original design of the Queen Elizabeth uh, and all, a lot of the things that they've been saying, you know, about the importance of being able to uh, operate with the US Navy and with the French. Perhaps they will finally discover that actually there are other allies with Stovall aircraft, not least the US Marine Corps, who ordered the British representative on the F-35B programme to clear his desk immediately when the SDSR came out, not to mention the Italians and the Spanish who also operate the Harrier. But to change for a Stovall replacement. But to change back now to the to the original uh, B would be astronomically expensive when it comes to the Harriers, uh, the carriers, wouldn't it? Well, no, actually, it'd be cheaper because you would save the billion you need to convert the carriers to cats and traps. The uh, one of the features of the current program is that nobody seems to be quite sure what is going to happen. Is Queen Elizabeth going to be fitted with cats and traps after she's run her trials, and therefore we would have an operational carrier around about 2020, which would be Queen Elizabeth, and Prince of Wales's future would then be uncertain. She she, uh, she might go into mothballs, or is is it going to be that the Queen Elizabeth is is, is uh, kept as a helicopter carrier and Prince of Wales is fitted to carry the aircraft? But it costs a billion extra, so I'm reliably informed, to build the extra catapults and arrest gear in the ship. So it would save money with the ship and the F-35Bs would not be hugely different in price, perhaps a little more expensive than the F-35Cs. So we would be able to save money with the carrier, but it would be something of a reversal. <laughs> Other countries have already cut or delayed the number of F-35s it will take or buy due to cost pressures. Britain's expected to take about 138, I think. Are we likely to see that number reduced? Well, well, well. the numbers that were quoted, actually, for the F-35Cs were as little as 12 in the front line. So, yes, I think I think so, yes. I mean, the that figure seemed to be extraordinarily small for a 65,000-tonne aircraft carrier. Um, and I think the numbers will, will be reduced because the cost is very high. I mean, you get what you pay for. It's a very advanced aircraft. But a very advanced aircraft means there's a, there's a lot to go wrong with it. And it's not inconceivable, given the pressures on the American defence budget, uh, that, in fact, the Americans themselves might cancel the F-35, which will mean that we will be looking for another aircraft. The front runner is the, if we keep with cats and traps, is the FA-18EF, the American standard carrier carrier uh, uh, fighter, which the F-35C is supposed to supplement. Uh, BAE have got a sea typhoon program. After many years saying it was impossible to convert to carriers, uh, they were offering one to the Indians. It didn't actually get the contract for the advanced fighter fighter the Indians wanted. They went for the French, and there is indeed the French Rafale as well. So there are alternatives for the um, for the carriers, but we want to keep the F-35. After all, large parts of the F-35, the R fuselage, are actually built up here in the northwest of England. So if the F-35 was cancelled, it would be quite an, yet another industrial hit for BAE. Professor Eric Grove from the University of Salford. Christopher Lee, they've got to get this right, haven't they? Surely it's crucial to the carrier programme. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you get a carrier, ain't got an aeroplane. A bit embarrassing, isn't it? Eric touched on something there uh, which is extraordinarily important. That's the American defense budget. The Pentagon's going to get have to get somewhere in the region of 400 to 5.2 million billion, sorry, billion out of its budget. The chances are the way it's going is going to have to get a trillion by next year. Understand where a trillion dollars is going to come from. One of the ways of getting that cost down is to cancel the F-35 program as it is and maybe even just reduce it. If you reduce the F-35 programme, the cost per unit goes up. UK, your 138 wish list for that aircraft becomes the 12 that Eric was talking about. 
that makes the whole thing very, very difficult. And also modifying the carrier is a firm up in the Clyde called McGregor's. And McGregor, what do they do? They, they produce lifts. You know, if you put an airplane down below in a ship, below decks, you've got to lift it up. Mm. To change from one variant would cost £45 billion. Pounds. That is the size of the problem. It's a £45 billion pound problem before you get the aeroplane. I mean, do we, do we need aircraft carriers? After all, we haven't got one now. Yeah, I think you do. Um, I think you need, if you, if you want to get out of just being in so-called asymmetric warfare, you need it for force projection. A lot of talk, for example, about Falklands. Very nice to have an aircraft carrier. But you, when you have an aircraft carrier, remember, apart from the aeroplanes, you also have a destroyer escort system, frigate escort system, subsurface escort system. It's much bigger than one flat top. I want to talk to you briefly about this, this strange thing which has hit the papers today, and this is this leaking of the Syrian president's emails, um, talking about his wife's shopping habits and lots of other funny things. It's bizarre, isn't it? Well, yeah, it doesn't matter either. You know, it, it is not relevant. I mean, it may tell us a bit more about the shopping habits of Mrs. Assad, but it, is, it, it, it doesn't get you an iota near of trying to figure out what you're supposed to be doing about Syria, if you can do anything at all. And back to Obama and the Cameron meeting. They hadn't got anything that they could do. There's a meeting next week, let's watch it next week, of the Arab League. Okay. See what they come up with, because those are the people that eventually are going to have to sort this out in the Middle East themselves. And apparently North and South of Cyprus are talking to each other as well. Is that good news? It is. I can't quite see where they can go at the moment. I mean, especially the Greeks' uh, influence is, is not great. But yes, they started talking again. It's a lot goes on there that we think, oh, well, it's not, such, it's not so divided. But again, we ought to be keep uh, an eye on that, especially as an EU meeting. And the EU meeting will want to know what the Turks are doing because the Turks want to get into the European Union. I actually don't believe they do anymore, but that, that's... Uh, that, that's, that's the game plan. But when it comes down to the average Turkish Cypriot or Greek Cypriot, it's all about property, isn't it? Uh, especially if you happen to live in the north, or you used to live in the north. Mm. So there we are. That's uh, almost uh, brought us to an end this week. Don't forget, if you'd like to take part in the programme at all, if you've got any thoughts or anything you'd like to offer into the programme, then you can follow us on Twitter. All you've got to use is the hashtag BFBSSITREP. You can join in any of our discussions. My thanks to all of our guests today and, of course, Christopher Lee as well. You'll be pleased to know that Kate will be back at the same time next week. I shall take a rest for a couple of weeks or so until I'm invited back again. So from me and everyone at the SITREP studio, goodbye.